we're sort of oddly weighted to the right today. <laughs> it's like empty, and then it gets heavy over here. Even you in the middle are all sitting on this side. Light or no? That's odd. Um, we're in Jeremiah today for one for one more time. Jeff, you're the odd man out. Good for you. I mean, I mean just, it's a weird angle from up here, but you should see this. Like, there's all these. There, okay, okay, good. Um, we're still in Jeremiah today, and then you're going to have a couple weeks off as um, Don Cunningham and, and Dan Jones share the next two Sundays. Um, I really hope you can be here for both Don and um, Dan, but especially for Dan. Dan is a new associate pastor at Mountain View. I haven't had the privilege of hearing him preach yet. I've heard amazing things, so it'd be great for you all to be able to meet him. Um, he's been there for about a year now, but this will be his first visit to Tidelands, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after. Um, so we're going to be back in Jeremiah after that. And today's text that we'll be reading together comes from Jeremiah 18, 1 through 12. And I just want to give us a, just a really brief introduction back into Jeremiah, um, just to be reminded that this is one of the major prophets of the scriptures. The, Jeremiah is, is, is long. There's a lot of stuff in Jeremiah that is not in order chronologically, if you're reading through it with us. Um, there's a lot of declarations against the nations. There's some things that have been written down by his assistant, Baruch. There's um, some things that talk about, and we're going to look at these later, some of the, the trials and struggles that Jeremiah went through. And it's all kind of mixed together. There's also a lot of oracles against Jerusalem and, and um, Judah and Israel. Because what's happening during Jeremiah's lifetime, what will happen, we're not quite there in our study of Jeremiah, is that... Um, God has promised judgment upon his people because they're not turning back to him and away from injustice, away from worshiping other gods. And so God is going to um, send um, other nations to conquer them and take them away. And this does happen during Jeremiah's lifetime. So he's preaching during this time or prophesying, I should say, during this time. He's the son of a priest and he's generally not accepted very well by his peers and by people, the royalty and and others in power, as is the case of many prophets. He will eventually go to Egypt with some of the exiles who are fleeing from the conquering armies. So that's Jeremiah. Um, What we're going to be reading about today is, is one of... Well, let's just read it, and then we'll talk some more about it. This is Jeremiah 18, 1 through 12. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Come and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as seemed good to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done, says the Lord? Just like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I may declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil... I will change my mind about it, about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. And at another moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom 
that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I have intended to do it. Now therefore, say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Look, I am a potter shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now, all of you, from your evil ways and amend your ways and your doings. But they say, It is no use. We will follow our own plans, and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of our evil will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, as we come back to studying your scripture, as spoken through your prophet Jeremiah, we need you. We need your Holy Spirit, for sure, to have any kind of understanding or wisdom. We ask, Lord, that as we look at this ancient prophecy, we would also understand how it speaks to us in this day, in the world we live in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Jeremiah goes to the potter's house. This would be like the equivalent of us going to Costco. Okay? Pottery was one of the major revolutions in the history of humanity. Because as soon as pottery began to be made, and people figured out how to do this, it meant they could store things. You could safely store seeds away from the rain and away from the the exposure to the air and have crops to plant the next year. You could store food for the winter. You could harvest and store. You could carry it with you. You could transport water and store water to travel across distances. I mean, pottery changed the world in a huge way. And there's debate among historians over, you know, which of the different revolutions in the world impacted humanity the most. But clearly pottery is up there, and many would say it is the big one. Pottery, think about that, just clay. But during Jeremiah's time, every community would have a potter. And the potter's house would have been like you know, going to Costco. I mean, you go to the potter's house and there's the different kinds of pottery and the different sizes. And of course, you think, wow, I really want to upgrade to that pottery. That's really cool. You buy that one. And next thing you know, your neighbor's got the bigger pot and you're envious. And you decide next year, I'm going to upgrade to the bigger pot, right? Or I can imagine them walking into the potter's house and going, it's August and the potter's got all the beautiful Christmas pottery out right? So I'm going to buy some Christmas pottery now because if I wait till Christmas, it's not going to be here anymore and he's going to have all the Easter stuff out, right? Okay, maybe not, but you get the idea. It would have been a, it would have been a place that people would have been coming and going. It would have been an important place in the community and God says, Jeremiah, I want you to go down to the potter's house and I want you to hear my word there. I'm going to speak something to you. And so Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house. I can remember making pottery. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to do this, but as I hear Jeremiah's word, it brings back these these amazing sensations. I had the chance to do it in an art class in uh, junior high, actually. And we had electric wheels. Now the potter's wheel, Jeremiah would have watched, would have been a, a foot pump, probably, type of wheel. But it's the same thing. People who make pottery, I have a friend I played football with. He's a, a pottery instructor at a college down in Arizona. And he's native, and he does some amazing reworking and new modern ideas of native pottery. And they're still very popular. I mean, this hasn't gone away after all this time. But I remember taking the wheel, and um, before you did that, you take the clay, 
and you get it, get it wet and you would knead it and you would knead it, knead it, knead it, get all the air and everything out of it. And then you take it over to the wheel and you would take it and you go, boom, and you plop it down in a big mass. And you have to get it in the center because if it's pretty close. If you don't get it in the center, then it's like going around like this and you can't really work it. But if you get it in the center and it's spinning right, then you can take your fingers or a tool and you can push on it. And as you push on it, it shapes it and it creates it. Now, I made something that would not look quite as good as this, but it would have been similar. This is ceramic pottery. This, I'm pretty sure, was mass-produced. I don't think someone's fingers went on this one. But I, these are not that hard to make. The trick is you get up here, and then you got to put your thumbs on the inside. And I remember, it would sometimes, you, you get it too wide and too thin, and then it would flop apart. And so what do you do? You know, sometimes you've been working it all the way up. Well, what you do is you turn off the wheel, you take the clay, you re-knead the clay, and you plop it back down and you start again. And that's what Jeremiah is saying. Now, I had to show you this today, because this came from the Deming Presbyterian Church. And we had um, someone come from Mountain View who collects these. And he was telling us about how valuable this particular piece is. It's a piece of um, ceramic pottery, and it came from Hagar. And it's an older piece, and it's very fun to look at because <clears throat> this piece was handcrafted. So you can actually see, if you look closely and you get the light right, you can see the individual beads. So what you did when you made something this complex, which I could never do, <laughs> I don't know if anyone else is better at pottery than I was, but you actually take ropes of pottery, like the snakes you make with Play-Doh, and you wrap them around. You can even see a line going down the middle. So this one was built in two pieces with you know, layer after layer after layer building up. This wouldn't have been done on a wheel, probably, except for the base, perhaps, maybe not even that. And, uh, and layer after layer built up. And you can see all these imperfections in it. And all these little imperfections are, show you that this was not a mass-produced piece of clay. This was a, this was a handcrafted piece. This is a, a vase, and that's what it, or boss, however you say that. And that's what it was used for. But it's, it's amazing, you know, you think about this clay may have been originally intended for something else or a different particular style because when you handcraft something, no two pieces ever turn out exactly the same. And so you, if, if perhaps that clay was meant for something and then it didn't work and the potter, you know, kind of tossed it aside and later picked it up and it made it into something beautiful that lasts. And then when you're all done, of course, you take the clay and you, you, you can paint it or glaze it and fire it. And sometimes they'll do multiple layers of glaze and paint and fire it and cook it, you know, basically at a high heat until it, it stays strong. And this image of pottery comes out throughout Scripture. But here in Jeremiah, we get this image where essentially God is saying through Jeremiah, through this image of pottery, and he's speaking this most likely as people are coming and they're seeing the potter at work. And he's saying that what God is working in this case is judgment against evil. He's working judgment against the people. But what God says is that if the people were to turn around and repent and change their ways, just like the potter can take the clay and rework it, he could rework something good versus a, a punishment or a judgment. And of course, we get the unfortunate response of the people in verse 12 at least as how God is interpreting through Jeremiah at this time, because they say, ah, it's no use. We'll follow our own plans. And each of us will do according to our own stubbornness what we want to do, right? 
It reminds me of how um, this message reminds me of how the story of Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah? He's the one who gets swallowed by the whale, right? Well, God sends him to Nineveh, this outlandishly evil empire. And he's got to go speak a message of judgment. But what happens is as Jonah is going through the city, people are hearing him and they're actually repenting. They're actually saying, he's right. We're doing bad things. We're going to turn away. And so they turn away. So Jonah is all ready for the hellfire and brimstone to come down on this place. And God says, no, I'm going to turn away from my wrath. They're repenting. Jonah is so upset. He gets so upset, he actually says, God, just kill me. He's laying out in the desert. He's like, just kill me. He goes, God, I knew you were going to do this. You can read this. This is almost literally what Jonah says. I knew you were like this. They would turn from you and you you would let them repent and you wouldn't bring your judgment. Jonah wanted judgment. Often when I'm um, involved in disciplining my kids, I, I come at first, if, if there's something that needs to be addressed, I come at first with certain ideas of consequences I have in mind. But I always want to have the opportunity to have this relationship in the, in the act of discipline. I want to see how my kids are going to respond. I want to know, are they remorseful for what they've done? Do they understand even what they've done? Are they willing to admit that they've done something wrong? <laughs> this is actually one of those times when I think about it, and I'm so glad I don't have a little girl. Uh, sorry, Jeff, I don't know how you do it. You guys, I mean, as a dad, man, I mean, like even Isabel, when Isabel comes up to me, she could probably get anything she wanted from me. Just has to give that look. I'm um, thankful I have boys, because this is easier for me. Because I want to have this relationship dialogue. I don't want to let my kids, you know, totally off the hook. I want them to be disciplined and understand consequences so they'll grow up to be good young men. But at the same time, I want to have this, this understanding between us of what's going on and why it's happened and why it's wrong. And God is like this with his people. He's like this with us. He pronounces, see, we read the prophets sometimes, I think we just, we go, man, it's just so dark and so harsh. But we have to understand that God is, he's setting out his plan so that There can be a relationship established and people can turn and repent. That's why God has sent Jeremiah. He's saying, there's this whole nation. They're at your door. I have them ready to come and to take you and take this place. But I'm going to tell you again and again and again what you've done, why it's wrong, and ask you to turn. It's the heart of God. It's actually very beautiful. I believe God works this way also with us as individuals. This is not particularly Jeremiah's concern, although it it also it is. Because it's a corporate message that Jeremiah is giving. So we can easily apply it to the church today. You know, the need for repentance. We looked at that last week. But a group of people or a nation or a church can only repent if individuals choose individually to change. Because remember last week we had Jeremiah standing in the temple and he goes, you all look really good because King Josiah, this young, young boy king, has repented. And he said, I'm going to cleanse the temple of all this terrible stuff and make it right. But the people are coming and they're just playing along. So it looks good. It looks like everybody's turning around, but they're not. So for a group, for a whole people to repent, it takes individual decisions. 
I'll never forget when my, um, my junior year, when we had a new head football coach come into Whitworth where I was playing football. And we had had a long history really of not being very disciplined and not doing a lot of things that good teams would do. And we had a new coach who came who had led a team to a national championship and he had very different understanding about how things would happen. So after a couple of weeks of, um, after school got started, we went through sort of our intense few weeks of training where we had three practices a day in August. And then school started, we went to our practice schedule and he set up some things that had to happen, including early team meetings before all the first classes started in the mornings and some other things. And I'll never forget, we're standing on Joe Albee Stadium in Spokane, getting ready for a game there that week. And it was a Monday and he lined us all up on the 50 yard line. And he said, every one of you who missed a team meeting this week, I want you to step forward. And we all stepped forward, including myself, a lot of us did. And he basically laid out his expectations for the team. He said, I'm gonna ask this question again next Monday. And anybody who steps forward, you will not be a part of this team anymore. I mean, really just kind of laid it on the line, right? It was interesting because what he was trying to call us to do was to, as a team, create a whole new culture and a way of being a team. And he was going to make sure that it happened, whether we wanted it to happen or not. So he was asking us as a team to all come together for something new. But individually, we all had to decide the next morning at 5 a.m., Am I going to go to the meeting this morning or not for a class? So individually, it takes work whenever there's going to be group repentance. And he did. He turned the team around. It took more than my years there. But he eventually made them back into a championship team. But it took individuals willing to make a change and some people stepping off and leaving. You see, God shapes us. That's a great image, the image of the potter. God shapes us for a purpose, but we also have to respond to that. And sometimes we go, I don't really like the way this looks, God. I think I'd rather go do my own thing in my own way. And later, you know, the, the writers of Scripture do use this. They talk about the absurdity of a created vessel saying, no, I don't really want to be this. I want to be something else. I mean, God has created us and shaped us. For a certain kind of relationship with God. A certain way of living and being. And all the law was intended to bring people into that way of living. Into being the kind of people God created us to be. But as you hear in Jeremiah, people say, no, I would rather follow my own stubbornness of will. I'd rather do my own thing. And so this picture Jeremiah is trying to paint is one for Israel, but it's also for us. You know, how are we going to respond I also see this another way. This is a bit more of a stretch, but I believe this is faithful to Scripture. And that is that also I believe sometimes we're shaped for something particular. And then in many ways we get broken. I mean, we have things that happen in our life. Sometimes because of our own decisions. Sometimes just because of circumstances that are painful. They break us. They reshape the way we're going to go. For some people, that may be the loss of somebody close to them. For some people, that may be something painful like divorce. It could be um, a loss of a job. I mean, it could be any number of things. It could be a physical disability or ailment that happens to you. And I believe that God is a, is a miraculous potter. 
I believe that instead of saying, here, let me, let me just take you out of this world and reshape you, he says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that imperfection in there, and I'm going to work it in. And he's a master at this. I'm going to work it in. I'm going to actually make that part of how I use you in this world. This is how God works. It's amazing. We have these painfully difficult things in our life. I mean, I went through my parents' divorce when I was in my 20s. And it was probably, I, I feel like it was just as hard for me as if it had happened when I was a younger kid. And it was painful for me. It was painful for my ha- family. I think it created some serious trust issues for me. And yet, I can't tell you how many times God has used that experience for good as I've worked with young people who were going through their parents' divorce. And now, perhaps, even as I've done some pre-marriage counseling, I feel like I have some wisdom and some insight that I might not have had otherwise. So God can use these things. He's, he's a master potter. He doesn't have to get rid of our imperfections. He actually says, let me work with that. I think I can do something with that. I can make something of that. There's one other thing I, I feel like it's important to say, because as I, even as I was reading this text this morning, I, I almost felt like if I heard a pastor reading this text, I would be sitting there ready for a message about how God is going to judge the United States. Okay, I, I just have to be honest there, because this is where I think a lot of perhaps preachers would go with this. Here's the problem with that. God is a God of people, not a God of nations. And we've become confused on this. You see, the people of Israel were a people before they were a nation. God, you can go throughout Scripture and I will challenge you on this. God is a God of people, not of nations. Even the words that we translate as nation, even the word in this passage that we translate as nation from Hebrew is goy or goyim. Okay, This is the word for the peoples. The peoples or a people. Um, In Greek, it's usually ethnos where we get our word ethnicity. Or ethnic, okay? This is, this is an important distinction because God deals, and he says nations and kingdoms here. So the kingdoms would be what we would think of as nations, okay? But the nations are the peoples. And in Matthew 28, where it says, go into all the nations, it actually go into all the peoples. This is why good missiologists we talk, that will talk about people groups, not about country borders. Because country borders, national borders, they're, they're, they're shaped and they're reshaped and they change. And they're made by human beings. But God does look at peoples. And scriptures tell us that God created the peoples. So um, God is concerned at getting the gospel to all of the peoples. All the people groups of this world. So there's actually unreached people groups very close to us. Many of the native peoples, the native American peoples who live close to us would be considered unreached people groups in the sense that there are sections of the native population who the gospel has not become strong in. They don't have churches in their indigenous languages. I don't know of any Lashutzi-speaking churches. That's the native language closest to us. So there are um, unreached people groups all over the world or ethnicities But this message, of course, during Jeremiah's time, he gives, and we'll see these, he gives messages to the nations around them. And he gives a message to Judah. But even Israel has broken apart into Israel and Judah at this time. And they have different kings and different borders. But God does not deal with people in this way 
since the coming of Jesus. Just yesterday when I did a baptism, I read the message that says, there is no longer slave or free, male or female, um, Greek or Gentile, but all are one in Jesus Christ. So the whole idea of God operating through nations or dealing with people as a nation is not a, a concept that is familiar to the New Testament. That's not how God works. Here's where things got messy. As soon as nations began claiming Christ, and this happened um, with Constantine. So in many Presbyterian churches, you'll still see this. looks like a PX. It's actually a Greek Cairo for the first two letters in Christos, Christ. And um, Constantine had this image of that on a shield. And he believed it was a message from Jesus. And he turned his family to Christianity. And soon Christianity became the religion of the empire. And all of a sudden, everything changed for the church. We talked about this last week, how Christianity has flourished and been the strongest at times when it has been under the most persecution and has not been legitimized by the state. God deals with people, not with nations. God is not interested in nation building. God is interested in people building. That's why he can send a prophet like Jonah to Nineveh. And when the people repent, he can say, okay, I'm going to hold off on the judgment that I was bringing. I want to be clear here. This is not to say that God cannot use nations. I wouldn't say that God has never used the United States as a country for some good things in this world. I think many people... Um, I would be one of those who would look at what happened during World War II and say, I see the hand of God in how that um, the intervention that happened against Nazi Germany. And maybe you disagree and that's okay. And I think we could then also be okay at looking at decisions that have happened in our nation's history and saying, I don't believe that was something that God would have wanted. That was a human decision. And we can say God is interested in people, not just nations. I hope that's a comforting word for you during a time of political election season. It certainly is for me. I do want to mention one last thing in light of this. Even in our missional communities, we try to look at um, people groups. So churches tend to do demographic studies. They say, we're going to start in church at Stanwood. So let's look at the zip code. Let's look at 98292. And let's look at what people are like there. And we sort of say, that's going to be our territory, right? Or Commando's going to be our territory. They're both going to be our territory. And we did some of the demographic studies before we started. Late in the game. We didn't want to start there. We did some of that. But again, those are sort of artificial, aren't they? I mean, anyone who lives in the Lakewood, um, Arlington, Stanwood, Marysville, Lakewood area, where the boundaries kind of all connect, you know how artificial these things are, right? So what, with our missional communities, we, said, we say we want every missional community to, that starts to think about a people group that God may be calling you to reach within this community. So that you're not just saying we're trying to be everything to everyone, but we're actually looking at a specific group of people. We did that when we started Tidelines. And we said we are serious. We feel like God is calling us to reach people who would never show up here on Sunday morning. That's still a, the, the foundation of our mission. That's why our missional communities are so important. Because the people we're trying to reach will never come here on Sunday morning unless they receive the gospel. And then decide they want to be a part of it. And finally, I want to end all of this by just saying, there is a verse in Philippians 3.20 that reminds us 
that our citizenship, that's a powerful word. It was a powerful word for the Roman Empire. It's a powerful word for us. That our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. God is still in the process of forming and calling a people. We call it the church. And God is still reforming that people. The image of the potter. Shaping and reforming. I love being part of the reformed church. Because we say that the church is, has been reformed. And is always being reformed according to the word of God. That God will shape and reform it. The only question for us is the same question. That was on the front of everyone's mind during Jeremiah's time. Which is, will the people respond? To what God is asking them to do. Let's pray. Father, we desire to be your people. We desire to live in a place where the laws are just, where you are in charge. And yet, God, we also know that we live in a world where people's individual greed and desire for power and control often reign. But we see beyond this, Lord. We see your kingdom being established. We claim our citizenship in heaven with you, and we want to be your people. Lord, if there is a need for us to turn and repent and change, we pray that we would be willing to hear your voice and respond faithfully. God, we ask that you would continue to use all of the the imperfections, the mistakes, the brokenness in our life, that you would use that and work that into something good. We want you to have it, God. We don't want to carry it ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.